As our ushers are passing out note sheets and Bibles, um, just wanted to mention one final uh, announcement. You might have heard last week in our announcements that there is a movie that's going to be playing on Monday uh, this week at 7 p.m. at AMC Brentwood. It's called Sabina, and it's about the life of Richard Warmbrandt. And um, he uh, wrote the book Tortured for Christ and is involved with the Voice of the Martyrs, great organization that brings attention to those who have suffered for the, the cause of the gospel throughout the world. So if you're interested in seeing that movie, it is a limited um, showing. Uh, we think there's still tickets left, so if you'd like to come on Monday night, uh, it's at 7 p.m. You can go on AMC Brentwood's website and order those in advance. Probably don't want to wait and buy them at the ticket counter because it is only a very limited amount of showing, so we're not sure if other people from other churches are going to swoop all those tickets up. So if you'd like to go, that will be tomorrow evening. And if you want more information about that, you can talk to Ross and Carol. Um, they brought that to our attention, so um, I think it would be a good time of fellowship and rejoicing what God is doing in the lives of his saints throughout the world and, and across time. It has been the Apostle Paul's goal through this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians to help his reader understand the magnitude of godly love and so that we would better know how God cares for his people and so that we'd have a better definition of how we as the church ought to be loving one another. In the specific context of this letter, the Corinthian believers needed to know how to love one another by using their spiritual gifts for the benefit and the blessing of the body of Christ, for the benefit of other Christians whom they are joined with, whom they are bound to in the worship of the one true God. And so if you ask the average person what makes godly love different from conventional human love, I think the answer you might get back more often than not is that godly love is Unconditional. Have you heard that before? That idea is so widely embraced and accepted as true that it is probably a statement most people don't really spend much time thinking about or trying to discern if it actually makes sense. Now, I've titled this sermon The Limitless Aspects of Godly Love, and I did that for a very specific reason. When someone says that God's love is unconditional, they really cannot mean that it is completely without conditions, that there are no limits or boundaries to love whatsoever. They cannot mean that. Anything that we can understand, friends, has got to have some kind of limits or boundaries. It has to have conditions, right? That is what makes it uniquely what it is. If love is anything you want it to be, then love is really nothing. It stops being something that we can even define or understand or praise God for. Because if it's just whatever you want it to be, then it doesn't have any shape. It doesn't have any character or any personality. And so we are learning about the distinct character, the, the distinct boundaries that define godly love today. If, God, if love was that limitless, then we wouldn't be able to call it love at all. What people really should be saying is that godly love is not limited in some of the ways that conventional worldly love is limited. So let us read verses 4 through 7 and then take some time specifically to let verse 7 settle into our hearts and minds this morning as we contemplate and as we allow the Spirit to move and work in our hearts. Apostle Paul writes, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things and endures all things. Look again at verse 7 that we just read. There are four statements made in this one verse outlining the limitless characteristics of godly love. But the four statements are not exactly unique. In fact, we would best understand these four statements as two unique linked pairs. Essentially, Paul is presenting us two ideas. The challenges that we have to deal with now in the present are dealt with. This speaks to what we have to bear as Christians or what we have to endure and put up with. Those two ideas are almost equivalent to one another, and we'll address them as one unit today. And then it also addresses the blessings that we look forward to later in the future. Those have an impact on the way that we endure suffering and the way that we bear. These speak to what we believe in and what we put our hope for, uh, what we put our hope in, rather. So this is set up in a pattern that in literature is called a chiastic pattern. That means the first idea begins and then ends the verse, and the second pair is sandwiched in the middle. So a chiasm is kind of like a theological sandwich. Paul arranges it like this so that the anticipation we have for the future is not just something down the road. Our anticipation, our hope, and our belief for what's to come is something we hold to within our struggle. I think that's artistically significant, the way he arranges it. Paul could have just said, he could have put these in an order in such a way that the ideas were present and present, and then future and future, but he doesn't do that. Instead, the format that Paul chooses reminds us that future things aren't something that we look forward to way down the road, but our view of the future has a practical impact on how we bear up under trials today. They are presently relevant. So remember the important assertions that Paul has made about love so far. He says that love is not a feeling. It's not just something that sweeps over you and then can fade just as quickly as it came. It's not just this undefinable uh, mystery. It is something real. Love is an action. And that is why this chapter is continually describing not just what love is like, but what love does. So Paul uses four verbs to describe the actions that love takes. Love will bear with. Love will endure. Love will believe. And love will hope. And to what degree will love accomplish these four things? The adjective that is written beside every verb in this list is the Greek word panta. And panta typically translates into English as all things. Now, what exactly is this all things referring to? Can panta literally mean every single possible thing? Does love hope for genocide? No, it does not, right? That's not what love hopes for. Genocide is a thing, the, the killing of a whole race of people, but that's terrible. That's not what love hopes for. Does love endure sin perpetually and always? This is just put up with it for the rest of time. It does not. God is love and God will judge sin one day. If, if love is something that we just endured or if sin was something we just endured forever, then how could we ever confront sin in a loving manner? So the term panta can mean literally every single thing, but the range of meaning also includes other nuance. It can also mean all kinds of things. So it can function as what we call a categorical all. In other words, uh, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what kind of hardships we have to face in life, all those kinds of trials and tribulations, 
Love is going to be able to take all of those in stride. It's going to be able to bear up underneath all of those challenges. The author's pointing out what, that whatever difficult burdens present itself to us, godly love will take on that burden and will bear it gladly as it continues to act out patience, kindness, and all the other attributes that make godly love godly love. So there are many conditional circumstances that challenge love, aren't there? But godly love's not deterred by those challenges. It will carry on, and it carries on because it has this hope. It has a hope in the future that gives us strength in the present. These, this belief and this hope that characterizes godly love points forward. And whatever a disciple of Jesus is to hope for, whatever they are supposed to faithfully believe, whatever God says, say amen to this, in love they will continue to fix their hope and belief on those things. They will not stop trusting the promises of their God. Though the Christian who loves doesn't totally understand the details of what tomorrow holds, the fact that God is sovereign the fact that he reigns over tomorrow and has revealed many excellent things that the believer can look forward to, part of the strength that I need to endure and to bear up under life's burdens in the here and the now will come from the joy that I receive from looking forward to those promises that God will surely keep. Now, I just used a term over and over again in that last description to describe specifically how limitless love is. I used the word whatever. And whatever is a very popular word in our culture today for different reasons, right? In today's usage, especially when spoken by someone who is of the younger generations, when someone uses that word whatever as an expression, what do they usually mean? They usually mean whatever, right? Roll the eyes. The details don't really matter. I don't care. I'm looking forward to the end of this conversation. I've already figured out the conclusions you're pushing towards, and in my opinion, they're wrong. So because of that, in so much as I can, I'm going to remove myself from this pointless discussion as soon as possible. That's what whatever means, right? You've probably never seen it exploded like that, but that's the definition of whatever. It's a very negative judgment. It is with one simple word, an expression of cold disrespect and dismissal. Whatever. I don't really care about what you think. Can we just move on and try to get to something that will do me some practically good? That's what, that's what whatever means in its usage today. But the word panta that we're studying today this is part of this, this list of four attributes of love. The word panta in the Greek is communicating a very different idea of whatever. And this is what I would like us to think of as a godly whatever. It is a whatever that is not fueled by frustration or disgust or pride. It is a whatever that is fueled by faith. It is fueled by assurance. Rather than throwing up our hands and declaring that the whole mess of life is just a big waste of time, the kind of whatever that is implied with this phrase, all things, is a lasting commitment to walk forward in a very determined and specific way to walk forward in love, whatever may come to pass, whatever challenge the Lord lays in front of me, no matter what pushes up against me or tries to throw me off of my course, I will love like Jesus Christ loved me, whatever the circumstances. That's what I would call a godly whatever today, friends. It is important for Paul's argument to establish this kind of determined willingness to accept whatever God has in store for us. Because we do not have the capacity to know what whatever might entail. 
Love is a risky commitment. Unless love is this ubiquitous, it's whatever you want it to be, undefined kind of thing that shifts and changes, there's no risk in that. Because if your feelings change, you just change your definition of love. But this godly love that we've been studying, friends, it is a risky commitment because it promises. It promises to behave in a certain way no matter how much the circumstances surrounding that commitment may shift. The love that we are called to express to one another is not entirely in our control, not in the way that we would like it to be. For instance, we cannot control the challenges that will threaten our ability or our resolve to continue loving the way we want to love. Let me explain that a little bit. I'm, I might face challenges with the object of my love. When I commit to love, for instance, the church, for the Corinthians here, that would be the challenges with other people in their church. The other people, the other people who are believers alongside them who are called to the blessing of their spiritual gifts, right? But those other believers are sinners too. And so they're not going to behave perfectly. They're not going to act completely Christ-like to one another all the time. And yet there is this call to continue to love your church even when your church doesn't love you exactly like it's supposed to. Even when the people in your church are inconsiderate to you or they overlook you or you get forgotten. Even when your church is sometimes rude to you that there is this calling, this commitment to continue to press on and doing all that you can to love the church by the power of God. Others will change over time. You might commit to loving somebody and then find with time, for whatever reason, their personality, their focus, their goals, their attitude towards you might shift and change. Are you going to allow that to dissuade you from loving them back? People do not always reciprocate love and appreciation as we expect them to. They may act immaturely. They may act as if they have no wisdom. They will eventually grow old. And when the people that we love grow old, sometimes their needs increase dramatically. And some of you have worn up under the love that is required to care for our elderly parents or our grandparents. And so it might be more difficult and challenging to love somebody that 20 years ago it was easy to love. These challenges potentially threaten our capacity to love someone else. And that is why Paul is establishing this commitment for godly whatever in the way that we love one another. Here's another example of how challenges threaten our ability to love. I'm going to face challenges not just in the object of my love, but the circumstances of life begin to shift. I don't know why that's up on the screen right now, guys. <laughs> What's up, George? How you doing, Lincoln? We'll get there. We'll get there. I'm going to face challenges apart from the object of my... <laughs> I'll just... Uh, <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> They're just staring at me, you know, I'm trying to preach. It's enough to have you guys looking at me for the word of God, but to have the founding fathers. All right. As I live through my life, I'm going to face challenges. And one of those challenges might not be with the object of my love. It might just be the circumstances surrounding us. It might not be the person that changes, but sometimes circumstances of life shift, don't they? And suddenly my life might be much easier if I was not expected to spend my time and my energy and my focus loving my brothers and sisters. Sometimes it would be far more easy for us just to withdraw and care about number one for a while. But that's not what God calls us to do as Christians. My resources might decrease. Some of you have gone through dramatic changes of employment over the last 18 months, right? 
You might even, even if you kept your job through this crazy season of life, it might be radically different than it was before. And so then if you've committed to care for a, a large family or to care for somebody in your family who has needs or somebody else in the church that you've been helping out, it might be difficult when your resources decrease and you don't have an, as much to give. Resources that I was trying to put to the use of expressing my love and support to the body of Christ might not be there like they used to be. Something or, or somebody more lovable might come along and I might be tempted to ignore the person I'm already committed to loving so that I might love this other person who is easier for me to love. So circumstances change radically. And Paul is trying to help us to gear our hearts up for these temptations, for these challenges, for these trials that we might have to go through as Christians so that our love will not be this fickle love that is blown here or there by the winds of change like we see throughout the world today. I might even face challenges within myself. I could get really sick. And then my focus on dealing with my own personal health might make it a real strain, a real struggle for me to care about the needs of others. I might struggle with personal depression for a season. Sometimes my feelings will not match my vows that I have made to other people. I may experience personal setbacks that take away my motivation for loving others. But if we're going to love the way that God loves us, then we can't just let those be the excuses that cause us to have a, a free pass so we can just stop loving other people. We can't control the challenges that are going to face us. We also can't control the effect that our love is going to have on the people that we commit ourselves to, can we? When a godly, level, uh, a godly couple makes every effort to love their children to Christ and to teach them the truth and to raise them up in the way of the Lord, they pray and hope that that, that proverb will come true, that they will not depart from that way when they grow old and when they become men and women. But we can't totally ensure that our children will one day walk in Christ. And that's not why we love them, to ensure that they will one day walk in Christ. We love them because it is commanded of us. We love them because Christ first loved us. And we have a Father in heaven who cares deeply for our souls and loved us even in our sin. So that's a challenge that we might face, that we might give love and give love and give love and not see the fruit of that love that we really hoped to see. Are we going to let that keep us from being a godly, loving people? And this is where godly love makes a distinct departure from worldly love. When challenges threaten worldly love, what does worldly love do? It may try to endure for a time, but eventually worldly love says, whatever and it looks for satisfaction somewhere else. And so the Corinthians needed to ready their hearts to bear all things, to, to endure all things for the sake of this godly love that they are patterning their lives after. Deep down, we know this. It's why we share vows to one another in marriage, right? This past weekend, Adrian and Savannah Linder got married. Praise God. They exchanged what? Vows specific promises that they made before God as witness and before many witnesses they had invited to that ceremony. And those vows included clauses like whether we are sick or healthy, whether we go through times of great need or whether we are well provided for, our love will continue to endure. We are going to stay committed to one another because we know deep down in our hearts that that's what really love is. It is, it is this enduring commitment. It is not just a feeling. It is not just some sensation that washes over us. It is promise. It is action. 
In two weeks, we're going to have our new members come forward, and they're going to share their intentions to commit to making this their church family, their church home. And they're going to become covenant members of this church. And we believe that membership matters, that it is significant, because we are called as the church of God to love one another, right? And that isn't just some disposable kind of love. It's the kind of love that we have received from God, then turned around and given to our brothers and sisters as the family of God. Godly love knows it will be challenging. It knows that it will face difficulties and hardships, but it will face those hardships in love with the help and strength of God. And so how do we, by God's grace, commit to a love that trusts the promises of God and battles every challenge? The answer to how is baked right into the middle of verse 7. It says, love bears or love believes all things. Love believes all things. In order to, to bear all things that God puts before us, in order to endure the hardships that come with love, we must learn to believe all the things that God declares to us. Now, there's a very common misunderstanding around this passage of Scripture where it says that God believes all things. It's tempting to read this wrong, but if you do, it can set us up for great, great manipulation. How is this not a call to be exceedingly naive in life? When we're called to believe all things, does that mean that no matter who says anything, that we're just like, okay, I'm going to receive that as truth? No matter how slimy that person might seem by their actions, you know, the Scripture commands me, I've got to believe all things. I've got to trust what they have to say. Um, your pastor was not always a very godly man. And when I was a teenager, in youth group, mind you, there was a very naive young lady, and we used to love trying to convince her of things that were not true. And so uh, you can bring George back up now. He's about to judge me. We were talking one time on a youth trip, and I decided I was going to try to convince this young girl that Mount Rushmore was naturally formed. <laughs> that it just happened through the processes of erosion. And at first she pushed back against it, right? She was not buying it, but I said, no, listen, that's why it's so remarkable. I mean, there's statues throughout the world, but the reason people always come to Mount Rushmore is because it just so happened to dissolve and erode that way to look like four of our presidents. Now, maybe I'm not even thinking that I convinced her, but she seemed to start to buy it at the end of, uh, of the conversation. I was a believer at that point, but sadly, I was still a very bad sinner. And um, so look out. Sometimes I, I do have fun with people. Um, the Christian believes all things, but not in this naive, indiscriminative way. To confess Christ is not to check your brain at the door of the church and then to just blindly follow whatever notion of truth that Christianity or that the religious powers that be in your church put before you. This misguided idea of love believing all things is what led Karl Marx, who is the father of communism, to describe Christianity as the opiate of the masses. He thought that Christianity was like a great big drug that you gave to people to make them stop thinking. Now that is not true Christianity. Good Christians should be the most thoughtful people in a society because Christians care about what is true and they are determined to not be misled by what is not true. That misguided idea of naive love that just embraces whatever is what caused philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche 
to describe Christianity as servile mediocrity. In other words, it's a mindless form of servitude that prevents people from ever achieving their greatness by promising them great blessings that they don't have to do anything for. That was Nietzsche's view of Christianity. But Nietzsche, sadly, had a broken and an adequate view of what real Christian love is. And you can see that by looking at the emptiness of that man's life. Godly love believes all things, meaning that it believes all the things that God has revealed to us to be true. And how does he reveal those things to us, friends? He believes those things to us through the sure words of Scripture. He reveals to us what we need to know of him and of life. The revelation of God is what is believable. The revelation of God is what is trustworthy and faithful. And so Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why is the, the word described as a sword there? Because not everything is believable. Not everything is on the surface what it appears to be. And when we study the scriptures, when we listen to the revelation of God, he gives us the tools that we need to divide through what is false and what is true and to cling to what is true and good and to love that truth. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says, For the law of the Lord, I love this psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I need that promise. I'm a simple man. But this, this scripture that God has given to us makes us know things beyond the abilities of our minds to know. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. What a beautiful testimony to the scripture that God has given to us so that we might rightfully believe all the right things. Our trust is in our God. And as we have placed our lives in the hands of this mighty creator, we do not get to pick and choose what parts of his revelation we will build our lives upon. No, Jesus himself is our cornerstone. He is the linchpin of everything that is good, that is built up in our lives. And this book represents his divine communication to the church. So our love believes all the things that he has shown us and declared. And because of that testimony being true and faithful, our belief in the, true of, the truth of God will fortify our ability to love one another with confidence and endurance, even if it gets really difficult to do so. To believe lesser things with the kind of trust that should only be given to God is to throw your own spiritual well-being right into the oncoming traffic of man's crooked will, and it becomes idolatry. Godly love doesn't instantly disbelieve man. We're not constantly walking around with our eyes half-closed, completely skeptical of each other, just waiting for the next guy to stab us in the back. But godly love roots all of its confidence in the true and believable revelation of God's word. We can and should behave charitably towards one another. Especially with believers, we should want to believe the best of them. Think of the best of someone as long as we have no good reason to think otherwise. 
But this characteristic of love is in no way a blanket commandment to receive everything that everyone says at face value. Did the wise men, when they came before Herod and uh, presented themselves as they entered into the country seeking after the Savior, when he said to them, when you find this Savior, this Messiah, come back and tell me about him so, uh, so I can worship him too. Did the wise men believe that? They knew better, right? The Lord instructed them to go a totally different direction home because Herod wanted to put to death this political threat to his authority and to his reign. Did Peter believe Ananias and Sapphira and each one of them came one at a time and lied systematically about the gift that they had given to the early church in Jerusalem? He did not believe them. They were lying not only to Peter, but they were lying to the Holy Spirit. So there are times when we must use our discernment and recognize that true love doesn't just believe everything as a blanket statement. It believes what is true. So this childlike, believe it regardless of evidence to the contrary kind of faith should only be given to the one being, God himself. And Paul is counting on the Corinthians to understand that. Godly love puts its faith in God, knowing that God cannot break his promises. All that he has declared will surely come to pass. I mean, if, uh, if somebody were to come up to me after the service today and say, come on, let's go down to the pier. Go ahead and throw your line off over the edge of the pier, put it into the water, and when you pull it up, uh, you're going to get a stimulus check on the end of that line. <laughs> it's going to be good. You're going to love this, right? Somebody told me that, I wouldn't waste my time. I'd go have lunch with my family, continue to worship the Lord, but you wouldn't see me down at the pier with a, with, a, with a fishing pole, hoping and praying that the next one I pulled up would have money on the end. And yet when Peter is told by Jesus, the Son of God, that the temple tax is something that the Christian should pay, and he says, go ahead and throw your line in, in the water. And he pulls up a fish, and what does he have? It's got a, he's got a shekel in its mouth. And he tells him to go take that shekel and pay the, the temple tax. That's God truth right there. That's not just a man. You only put that kind of faith into the Lord himself. You don't put it into people. You don't put it into institutions. You don't put it into governments for sure. You put it into the hands of the Lord your God. There are practical implications to believing whatever God declares. If you're going to have this kind of radical trust in the one who redeems you, then it means you're going to start to trust his law. The commands that he gives you in the scriptures that dictate what good life looks like and what obedience to the Savior looks like, you're going to start to say yes to those things. I mean, it's not always easy to do that. There will be times when the law of God is going to cost you some money. It's going to cost you a friendship or a relationship. It's going to cost you your precious time. It's going to cost you your comfort. And if we have not yet experienced that in this nation, prepare yourselves, friends. Because it will become increasingly so that to be a Christian in this land is going to come with contingent costs to it. But when we follow after Christ, that means that we don't just take the law and obey it when it is convenient for us. It doesn't mean we just we use that law as a general guide or as an encouragement to our lives, but we look at what God has declared for his church to do and we do those things. We don't do things like those things. We do those things. We let God say yes and we let God say no, and then we say amen to what he calls good and evil. It means that we're going to trust his promises. That means we've got to study his word and think about the things that he told us to be ready for, right? We should trust the promises of God. That when we struggle with sin, and we don't keep the law perfectly, what is the promise that gives us hope and, and, and grace? 
the promise is that if we are faithful and just to confess our sin to him, then he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to wash us clean of all unrighteousness. We realize that what was done on the cross was not just the entryway into Christianity and then it's all on our shoulders. No, our every breath is in Christ. Our every strength and hope is in him. And so we learn to lean on the promises of God. And when we love somebody who's really hard to love, when we love somebody who just strains our hearts and, and, and costs us dearly in emotional capital, we do that trusting that we have been called to be a people of love. And it wasn't just for us that he calls us to behave like that. It's for the benefit of the lost, for the broken. In the same way that his love for us was beneficial to us when we were lost in our sins, let us be willing to love even those who are very difficult to love. It means that we will trust his ability to preserve us as his church and to provide for us. When he calls himself our good shepherd, he's identifying the fact that there are wolves about, right? There are bears, there are hazards that the church needs to be aware of. And so let us trust our God and his ability to preserve us. And part of how he preserves us from those pitfalls of life is through his law, friends. When he tells us to love people in a certain way, when he tells us to honor the marriage but and keep it holy, he does that because he wants to preserve us from the hardship and the shipwreck that comes from living like this lost world that doesn't know what real love looks like and treats everything like it's love. And it means we're going to trust in the goodness of his will. When we think about Romans 8:28, it tells us that he works all things to the good for those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love him. We've got to trust that. When we lose somebody who's dear to us and we wish they were here, we've got to trust that that is being used for the good of the church and at large, for the good of the spread of the gospel, for the good of that individual who was taken home to glory. Godly love trusts that God, God's will will play out in good ways for them. So godly love believes all things is a statement that has a special regard not only to the present but to the future. Because it believes all the promises that God has made to us, and those promises include the fact that this God who ascended on high and sits at the right hand of the Father will come back again for His church. All those manifestations of those promises have not yet been consummated yet. So we look forward to those things expectantly. There are really two sides of the character of love that are being shown to us here. The present side, the endurance and the bearing up of under trials, and then the future side. You could not bear the challenges and the trials of the present well if it were not for the confidence that you've been given in the future things to come. So godly love, not only does it bear all things and endure all things, but it hopes all things. There is a special kind of hope that grows in us as we live our lives consistently believing that the things that God has revealed to us through his word will surely come to pass. The apostle Peter calls it a living hope. So if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, I want to go over briefly a really important passage of Scripture that talks about that hope that Peter rejoices in and calls the churches everywhere to rejoice in. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's stop there. Jesus alone, says Peter, has caused us to be born again to a specific kind of hope. It is a living hope. Think about that. It's not just some theoretical hope. It is not just some conceptual hope, but it is a real living hope, a hope that has an impact on us today. This has come to us by way of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, it is, of course, good that Christ rose from the dead. He said that he would rise from the dead, so if he had not, that would have erased the power of the cross because it would have shown that, that Jesus was not truly God in the flesh. He has to be able to do what he says he does. And Christ on the third day rose victorious over the grave. But that has implications not only for himself and not only for our redemption, but also for our resurrection. Because then Jesus goes on to assure his people that he is the first of many to be resurrected. That those who trust in him will also likewise see their physical body, this earthly body, a body that you probably have a love-hate relationship with because it does you some good, but it also has great limits it might have to experience pain in this life for a time. It might be falling apart on you right now. But this body, one day after being put in the ground and being put to rest, will be raised to be fit for eternity. And that promise of God that you will have an eternal dwelling place should be a great encouragement to you. No matter how bad your body starts to crumble today, no matter how many hardships you have to go through, now how much time you have to spend in Kaiser, right? This body's not the long-term body. A better version of this same body will carry you through to eternity. This living hope includes an inheritance described in several enduring ways. What does Peter says? He says it is imperishable. That means it cannot be killed, right? It is undefiled. It cannot be corrupted. And it is unfading. It cannot be diminished. The living aspect of this hope consists in the absolute surety that we have that God will make his will come to pass. And by the work of Jesus, we're no longer on the wrong side of God's will. Friends, don't forget that you were at one point. Every human being born under the covenant of Adam was on the wrong side of God's will. God's will is to punish the wicked and to redeem those who have received his grace. And we were all wicked. So that means there was a firm target of judgment upon every one of our heads the moment we took our first breath, even before that, when our hearts started beating in conception. Even before that, when we were knit together in our parents' womb, we were already bearing the curse of Adam. And so let us have great hope in the fact that this God who has chosen to love us through the work of Christ can bring us from that side of his will, the judging and just side of his will, to the mercy side of his will. But he doesn't do it by forsaking Justice. He does it by taking the punishment of justice upon himself. Christ Jesus, whom we will celebrate in the elements of the table in just a short time, died in our place, Christians, so that we might no longer be the enemies of God, but might become his sons and his daughters. So this hope is not based on a confidence in ourselves. The promises are kept in heaven. How? For you not by you. Be thankful for that passage of Scripture. These promises are kept in heaven for you by the mighty hand of God 
and not by any work that you do yourself. If you've got a friend who's struggling with the assurance of salvation, take them to 1 Peter and show them these wonderful works that God is doing and doing to preserve and will surely make come to pass no matter what. They are guarded by the power of God and not by your own power, and so you have nothing to fear. So we rejoice in this. And notice the occasion of today's struggles might not seem like a time for rejoicing. He says, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So he's anticipating that these churches in Asia Minor, this letter was a circular, it went to several different congregations, and he was preparing them for this, that they were about to experience a turn in the culture. Maybe that's relevant, right? Maybe that's something we should pay attention to. A turn in the culture in which they were going to begin to experience greater hardship and burden because of their choice to love Christ. And so he says, though you must suffer for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, do not lose sight of the fact that you have a hope that is not a potential thing. It is a living thing. It is real. It is alive. If these things fall in place, then we'll be assured of blessing. If my job opportunity comes through, I'll be blessed. If this man says, yes, I do, and, and, and marries me, then I'll be blessed. If I get to have kids, I'll be blessed. There's all these ifs that we put on, on our hope and on our assurance. That's not how the Christian operates. The Christian operates like this. Because of God, I have hope. Because his will is perfect, I do not need to tremble in fear. I can persevere through this. And it's not a confidence that we place in us or our strength. Because apart from Christ, we do not have the capacity to endure. Our mantra should not be, you can do this, as we look in the mirror. You can do this. You can do this. Our mantra should be, Jesus did this. Jesus did this. He endured for me. He did not shrink away from judgment. He did what I could not do for myself. And he is now equipping me and giving me everything that I need to be the Christian he's called me to be. So what did Jesus bear and endure in the course of loving his people? A lot. Jesus endured our rebellion, didn't he? Justice could have been immediate. As soon as his creation soured and turned away, it could have been immediate. And God's personal relief could have been immediate from the, the stain of our sin. I was working in the garage this week on a, 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 something I was fabricating in my garage for one of my cars. And I made a template and it didn't work out. I tried it, so I threw it in the garbage. I didn't put up with it. I didn't endure it. I just went and made a different one. God could have done that. He had every right to do that with us. But instead, what he does is he endures alongside us. And he even puts up with our rebellion for a time. It's not that our sin is just brushed away and, and just forgotten. He endures it for us. He bears that. There is no way that we can wound God, friends. We cannot hurt him or overcome him because he is invincible. But because of his voluntary long-suffering towards us, because of his committed love for his church, our actions do have the capacity to grieve God. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we shouldn't think about that in too anthropomorphic of terms. That means like God is some sort of a man where he's like in a corner crying over our sin. It's not the same. He's not not pushed around by our obedience or disobedience, but there's a sense in which our breaking of God's law grieves him. The fact that we can grieve God should never be thought of as a weapon that we can wield against him, 
For he is made no less God by our attacks. He is not diminished when we grieve him. Rather, we should see it as a weapon that we wield against ourself to our own harm. To grieve God is to assault the quality of the relationship that we have with God. And there is no more precious thing than you can have in this world but your connection to God through Christ, friends. Can a Christian do him any greater harm than to hurt his relationship with Christ? Now again, our promises are sure in heaven. I'm not talking about losing our salvation, but I am talking about walking in the truth and the love of God. You can walk through this life as a Christian and not experience the joy of the living hope. But don't do that to yourself. Trust in his words. What did Jesus bear and endure in the course of loving his people? He endured our sin. He endured the condescension. We're about close to the Christmas season yet. I've already heard like three or four people. It's funny. Every year people declare to me, if this store plays Christmas music in Thanksgiving, I'm going to flip my lid. I'm like, why are people so passionately against this? I think we should be singing Christmas songs all year long. Because Jesus is our hope every month of the year, not just December. Let's just, there's not better stuff on the music. What are you missing out on by, by getting these Christmas songs on, on the radio in the stores that you go and shop in, if you do that anymore? Most people are just shopping online these days. But Jesus endured suffering and, and through his condescension. He took on human flesh. We're talking about immortal, eternal divine God who exists everywhere and knows all things and yet for a time he says yes to coming and taking on a human body and dwelling in, in this capacity that we have to dwell in and that's more than a king just putting on pauper's clothes and hanging out in the ghetto for a few hours. He struggled with sleep. He struggled with having to eat and drink. He had to deal with the sins that were all around him, not his own sins for he lived in such a way that was different than ours in this way. He never broke the law of God. He was born under the yoke of, of Moses' law, and then he just fulfilled it. He did every single thing that the law called him to do. And so he completed the law in his obedience to God, but he was willing to do that for our sake. He has tasted the pain of our wickedness. He willingly submitted himself to the stipulations of Moses' law, making himself beholden to it so that he could fulfill its requirements on our behalf. That's not all he endured. Jesus endured the cross. He put up with the pain and suffering of the most brutal death that the human mind could imagine in that moment. This is so much more serious, though, than just the thought of physical suffering. Jesus became, the scripture says, a curse for us. This being who is infinitely pure and clean and perfect took all of our sin upon his shoulders that the curse of Adam might be lifted from all whom he had set aside to believe in him. He was willing and able to bear that. That shame and that guilt rested upon him and upon his body. What Jesus endures and bears is not only past tense. Jesus endures our present imperfection. You think God loves this church? He absolutely does. But it grieves him when we as a church do not walk in love with one another. It grieves him when we don't we don't project the light of Christ in an accurate way. He strives with an imperfect church, one that is in constant need of reformation and sanctification by the Spirit. He continues to love and to love and to love his bride. And as you think about what Christ endured for you and what he accomplished by enduring it, 
You're thinking about the very fuel that makes it possible for you as a redeemed child of God to love God and to love other people, regardless of whatever might come to pass in your life. Paul shows us that godly love bears all things and endures all things because godly love believes and hopes in all the things that God has declared to his people. And so let us put aside the childish kinds of love that may be so familiar to us, the kinds of worldly love that insist upon an immediate return on their investment, the childish kinds of love that are founded in us getting our way rather than being founded on the perfect way of our Savior, a will and a way that we should constantly be praying for and conforming our own expectations to to meet. The hope that we can draw from God's declarations is a limitless hope, a steady and trustworthy hope. And it will not run out on us. So we may never consider running out or may we never consider running out on this God who has given us all we need to love him right. And since this limitless hope is ours, let us find strength to endure every temporary hindrance and hurt in the confidence of his promises kept. We may not see the manifestations of them right now. Maybe not for some time, but they will come. And as surely as the blessings of our salvation has already come in Christ and has been applied to us by his grace. Let us bear up under every trial with the glory of his perfect victory.